Hi, this is Cliff Click, and welcome to today's podcast on Spectre and Meltdown. I don't actually know if you can reasonably represent Spectre and Meltdown in a podcast, but I'm going to give it a go. But first, I'm going to make a, a little ad for myself here. I'm teaching classes. Um, you can find them on rocketrealtime.com. That's all one, uh, all one word, Rocket Real Time. And the classes are on all sorts of high-performance computing and programming skills. Um, buried in one of the classes on the you know, high-performance from understanding the low levels is totally the, uh, the discussion on Spectre and Meltdown with slides. So, so there's, there's a deeper discussion to be had here than what I'm going to do today. Okay, so having said that, oh, and then I have my blog, cliffc.org slash blog. So let's talk about Spectre and Meltdown. So what are they? Um, Fundamentally, they are uh, hardware and software vulnerabilities that work on the way the modern processors actually get performance. So they are not—they uh, do not require any sort of prior vulnerability or bug or virus. They can work on totally correct software, patched up software, modern hardware, everything sort of perfectly done the best way we know how, and they can burn through all security layers and read stuff from uh, you know other processes and other parts of uh, memory spaces. In particular, the obvious thing to do is go read your secret crypto keys and then use the key to unlock your bank account or whatever. So, so these are serious vulnerabilities. So the next thing I'll say here is that I just got back from a conference where I've talked to the guys at Google and Apple who are working on this directly. And uh, you know what I'm telling you is modern as of a week ago um, from the date of this blog. So the situation's still moving fast, but people have worked for many months on ameliorating the vulnerabilities, and they do not have any known completely good way to, to stop the bugs. The techniques they have will stop various aspects of the bug, but in doing so, they'll pay a cost between like 30% of 10x slowdowns, like really big slowdown numbers to be secure. So this is a, a, a difficult problem to deal with. It probably ultimately will require a hardware change from Intel and a software change at the application layer, um, not just a, a rebuild of your underlying, not just an update of your, you know, of your Chrome or your Firefox or your Safari, but an actual application level uh, to indicate which pieces of data need to be kept secret and accessed the safe but slow way or whatever. So this is not a quick problem to solve either. Okay, so having said all the scary stuff, you know, what is it and, and how do they work? So both of these attacks, um, and today I'll only present Spectre in great detail because of timing on the verbal-only channel, um, but they both work in fundamentally the same way. They're going to use a non-architected hardware state. So what does it mean to be non-architected and why does it exist? So the architected hardware state is the thing the, the hardware guys guarantee to the software writers about the hardware. Here are a set of registers on Intel. It went from 8 to 16 some years ago. Um, one is the stack pointer, and you can't really do anything else with it. So you have roughly 15 registers. There's a set of instructions that do things like load from memory or store to memory or add or compare or jump or branch or whatever. So th there's a set of instructions and registers um, that taken together, the behaviors of those taken together, define the architected state. What they don't specify in that architected state is the performance of any of this stuff. And to make it go faster, hardware guys added non-architected state that's not visible to the software writers directly, but it's useful in helping the, the processor run instructions faster. 
And so what is a non-architected state example? The obvious one is your caches. We all heard about caches. If you're a developer, you know what a cache is from a software cache, but the hardware obviously has a caches as well. Actually, a big Intel these days will be like three tiers, L1 and L2 are per core, and L3 is shared amongst multiple cores. Um, if you have multiple sockets, they're not shared across sockets because those go, because it's not on the same die. The caches that I'm talking about are all on the same die. So now that I have defined, well, there's caches, means branch predictions, branch target buffers, um, and there's a couple variations of these on any x86. These are represent state that the processor holds onto to help it go faster, typically by predicting a value which is going to be used shortly and holding that predicted value in some on-chip memory that's not visible directly to the programmer. This is the non-architected state. Where where is this stuff? You know, how is it being used? Because it's not architected, there's no security at either the hardware or the software level around it. Um, it's all only not directly drivable by software or readable. But because it changes the timing of things, you can read it via timing attacks or by doing timing tests. So here's an obvious example. If I load a line into cache because I load a variable. It, and it wasn't in the cache in the first place, I have to go to memory. That's pretty damn slow. Modern processor, maybe 300 clock cycles. If you're an x86, you had four issue slots times 300 clock. You could have issued a thousand instructions while waiting for it to come from memory. Okay, now that you've got it in cache, in your L1 cache and you load it again, it's three clock cycles. So it's 100x faster. So it's hugely faster to pull out a cache. So if I want to know if something's in memory or in cache or not, it suffices to time how long it takes to load it. Um, and there's a bunch of ways to make good good timers to go do this. Um, the most obvious and easy one is Intel hands you a high quality, high resolution timer called the TSC register. It's like the tick something counting register. It counts hardware clocks, basically. You read it once, you do a load, you read it again. If the load came back in three clocks, it was in your L1. If it came back in 300 clocks, it was not in your L1, right? So you have some easy way to go get the, the timing. Having said that, if you deny the TSC register because, say, you have a hypervisor who's trying to do security for Spectre Meltdown and just denies the TSC register or to make it like a sloppy thing, um, there are dozens and dozens of other ways you can get high-quality timers out. So it's not sufficient to defeat the TSC register. And the TSC register is highly useful for other things, so I, I wouldn't uh, recommend this as a solution. I don't know what the right answer is, but if you're in the browser, for instance, and you're running, uh, you want to run video games and people want to have, like, 60 hertz frame rate updates they can get out of the browser, good high quality frame rate ticks. 60 hertz is a lot less uh, accuracy than the TSC register gives you, but it turns out with a little statistical analysis on these attacks, you can distinguish between an in-memory and an out-of-memory fairly well with a very low resolution timer. Um, because you're doing it with statistics, right? So the properties are sufficiently good enough that unless the, the timer, all possible timers are made extremely sloppy in a statistically relevant way, um, you can just pick a different timer until you get one that's working and then you can go, go pick something out. Okay, so now let me get in a little more details here of how we're going to, to do this. So the high-level view is we're going to empty some of these caches and there's multiples we're going to empty out. Um, basically by doing something with them that we know um, is junk and they'll get filled up with junk. And now that they're filled with junk, we'll go do the thing we want to go have happen, which will touch one bit of the, the memory that we're trying to figure out and put one fast bit in the caches and all the other bits will be slow. 
then we will go visit all the cache bits again, looking for the one that is fast and the rest that are slow. And as soon as we find the one that is fast, we will have picked up one bit or one byte, depending on how it works, of the secret piece. And then we'll repeat, flush the caches, go again, flush the caches, go again. Different kinds of attacks run at different speeds, but you can get attacks that run between tens of kilobytes to handfuls of megabytes a second, reading memory that they're not supposed to be able to read. So seriously peeking through all the security layers at maybe megabytes a second, which is pretty rapid enough to read all the processor memory of, say, a JavaScript process and find your secret crypto keys. Um, if you happen to know where the crypto keys land, you can get there a whole lot quicker. <clears throat> In fact, you can get there within like a frame refresh rate of a, of a up screen update. Okay, so how does this work? So you're going to look for um, what we're going, to, we're going to call a sort of a, a read widget. I think that the, you know, the implementers here at Google and Chrome and, uh, I'm sorry, and Apple uh, were calling these things a read widget. I'm not sure which piece they were calling a read widget, but basically it was a piece of code in uh, the processor's memory. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm talking about Spectre here. Spectre only works within a process, such as sandbox JavaScript or sandbox Java, or maybe I'm running a... Um, uh, a USB sticks um, device driver in a sandbox so I can plug a USB device driver in and have the same kind of attack work. Um, whereas Meltdown works across processor memory and can read um, physical memory and uh, so it can read all of your kernel memory and so it can sort of rootkit a kernel directly that way. Um, I'm going to talk about Spectre because it's easier to talk about not because it works any different than the others. It's just a little simpler. So I want to find a read widget. And what's a read widget? It's a correctly array length, array length checked reference to an array where the value that gets loaded out of the array is scaled by some number which is big enough to um, cover a complete cache line. And then there's a second array load. Okay, so it's range checked, so it's correctly safe from the, the software's point of view. <clears throat> and I find it by getting a copy of the, the code of the process I'm running on. Like I go download Chrome and I go look at the binary of Chrome for this kind of a read widget. You'll find them by the dozens. They're all over the place. Okay, having found a read widget in the original binary, I want to be able to drive access into the read widget where, where I can set the index I'm going to load into. And the obvious set value is I simply run some sort of URL into the JavaScript that has, uh, you know, running some JavaScript where the x is something like the length of some value or it's some computed thing or whatever it comes from. And then there's a range check to confirm safety before you actually execute anything. Um, but I can set x to some arbitrary large value. And the next thing I want to do is I want to pick the value that I want to read from. So I'm going to read out of my sandbox and I'm try to read the secret crypto key in the JavaScript's core process, um, you know, his passwords, right? Without, the JavaScript obviously won't let me read those passwords. So I'm going to pick a space, a piece of memory out of the JavaScript. I'm going to pretend I know where that key lands, but I don't need to because I can read all of it and find it after a bit. But let's say I know where I want to read from. So I'm going to take the base of the array, which is controlled by JavaScript. I'm going to take my index X, which is controlled by the attacker. I'm going to scale it up such that the array check, the array will load from the memory I want to get at. Uh, in, in the basic parlance, I'm going to take the address of the key I want to read at, I'm going to subtract off the base of the array, and that's my index, right? It's just a giant-ass number. It's a hugely out-of-range thing. It's vast. It's billions or negative or whatever. It's huge. I don't care um, if it's huge or not. I'm just going to use this giant thing and blow the array length check. Okay, now what happens here? I have an array length check that guards the, the following instructions. 
I want it to normally pass, and it normally does. So if I just do a thing on this little read widget that passes the normal way just a few times, I will train the branch predictor that the array length check never fails, and it will predict to run into the actual array load operation with whatever my index has, right? So I want to make sure the, 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 branch, the branch predictor is trained the normal way it does. And I just run it a few dozen times, and it will be trained now to do the obvious thing and predict the way I want it to go. Okay, next. I want to prepare my caches. So I want to empty my L1 cache so that I can do a speed check on it. Maybe I want to empty L2, same strategy. I just read from a giant ass array. Um, it's 64 kilobytes for, for L1, and maybe 256 kilobytes for L2, varies by processor. So you read an array of sufficient size, it's all say zeros, I don't care what. And now the caches get full of zeros, all, all the cache lines, right? Minus whatever is currently being used to just to run the program itself. So 99.9% uh, .9 of the cache is filled with zeros and junk, right? And in particular, not the base of the array that I'm going to run the attack on, or the array.length field. So the array.length field will miss in my cache the next time I reference it, right? So now I want to touch the crypto key to get it into the cache, because I need it to be fast for the next part of the attack. Um, the rest of the cache is still filled with junk, but the, the crypto key, I just say use the crypto key. I say, please, sir, would you attempt to do something? And, and uh, you know, here's my guess at a key. It's wrong. You'll grab the real key. You'll do the, the crypto compare and blow me out. But on the act of grabbing the real key, it will load it into the cache. So the cache is now all junk plus a crypto key on the value side of the cache. And the address of the key is kept on the address side of a cache. So these caches have a you know, key value pair. The key for the cache is loaded with the address of the crypto key and the crypto key values in the cache. You get the two different keys there. Sorry about that. Okay, now I'm going to run the attack. So here's the official attack. Um, having set everything up, I go ahead and pass the giant X, which is indexing when added to the array. It's indexing into the key I want to read that I'm not allowed to read. So the processor immediately starts by loading the array length um, out of the base of the array. Well, loading the array length field uh, misses in cache. So he's going to start speculatively executing. He then compares my index against the array length, which is missing. He doesn't have it. So he can't complete the array length check yet. So he hits a branch. He doesn't know whether the branch will pass or fail. But the last time he was here, this branch all passed. This is with the indexes in the range of you know 10 to 20 or whatever normal ranges. Now I'm handing him indexes in the hundreds of millions to billions. Clearly it will fail, but that's you and I talking. The processor simply observes that the value is uh, unknown, and he's going to assume it's going to pass. So he's going to speculate through the, the branch and go to the next instruction. What happens next? He loads from the giant index plus the array to go get the value out of, ostensibly out of the small array that's the normal array. But because the index is so huge, he's well past that. He's far off the end. And this is all speculative, mind you. And he loads into some register the secret value that I want to get. Okay, he loads it into a speculative register. It's not part of the architected state yet. So the attacker, me, can't actually read it. But then the value that got loaded in that speculative register gets scaled by a, an amount larger than the size of your cache. So 256, say, some scaling values happens all the time. And then it's used for a second array load. And the second array load then uses a second different buffer, but now has this giant value um, that's offset. I'm sorry, has the key byte I'm looking for scaled by something bigger than a cache line. And, and so 
I don't care if it lands in the second buffer or not, because all I'm looking for is a change in the cache. So there are three loads in a row here. A load of array length that's missing in cache and that's pending. A load of the crypto key which hits. It has to be fast because this work has to happen in the speculative shadow. We're waiting on the load from main memory for the array length to come back. So we have to be quick. Um, but it's in cache because I did a crypto load earlier. So it goes in a couple clock cycles and it's done. It got scaled. And then we load a third time um, off of scaled amount. So now on the address side of the cache, I have the secret key I'm looking for scaled by a large number like 256 and some random buffer. I don't care what. And I don't care what the value got loaded on the load side of the cache. I just need the secret key scaled in the address side of the cache. And now the attack is basically done. I'll do a, a timing attack to read out K. I go to my L1 cache. I go try all 256 combinations for the byte I just secretly loaded. And um, I just load them and time each load. And for the one that's already loaded, it will be fast. And the other 255 are not in the cache and they'll all be slow. <coughs> and that, you know, once I discover that I've got one fast, a 255 slow, I have a reliable value for K. And I'm done, I have a secret byte K. And now I need some other bytes, so I repeat the entire attack process. Um, but it's pretty quick, it's microseconds sort of per attack and that kind of scale. Um, and so some number of megabytes a second, I can start to read bits out. So let me, let me run backwards here and run over this uh, attack scenario again so we understand it a little bit. There is, you know, basically attack works because I can set the non-architected state by just running normal instructions in the normal way being uninterested in the result except as a side effect of hacking the the, the non-architectural state. So I flush my L1 cache and I train the branch buffer so that the array length check passes normally, which it normally will. I then load into the L1 cache the secret key I want by by trying to use it in a normal way and having my test, my, my, my fake password fail, but the, the real key is in cache now. Then I run the attack. There's a first load of the array length. It's slow. It misses in cache. I now have the, the shadow of the cache miss to go do some other work. There's a compare and arrange check, which are all speculative because the load's not available. I then load the, the, the indexed value, which I picked to be with the array I'm, I'm range checking against. I picked to be the key I want to get. So I load into some, you know, register rename, speculative register. It totally gets rolled back when the branch fails, but I don't care. So some speculative register holds the secret key byte, it gets scaled, and then a second load, it modifies, or so now it's the third load, modifies the state of the L1 cache by, uh, by loading a, a, a cache line that's scaled by the secret key I want. And then the attack's basically over, the L1 cache holds the one of the 256 combos of key cache lines have been modified to be loaded, and the other 255 were not loaded, and there's some other junk in the cache I don't care about, and I go now read through my cache looking for the fast one line of the 255 slow lines, and I can pick out the secret byte. So it's a first load which misses, a speculative branch which is speculative because the first load is missing, uh, a second load which must hit. So I made the first load must miss, I made the second load must hit. Um, and then I got a byte which I then loaded, uh, used to load again, which changed my cache state. Uh, and, and it must miss, but it changes my cache state. And now I can go read the cache state based on timing attacks. And that is basically, you know, that's that's Spectre version one. There's a couple variants of Spectre. Um, there's uh, uh, one based off of 
uh, a different kind of branch speculative mechanism. There's one based off of store buffers, where store buffers can reorder or not. The you know kinds of ameliorations people are looking at are things like for every array load, you have to mask the index by mod, say, the size of the array, um, so that the hardware will prefetch only within the array, or you and mask it to, uh, uh, you know, mod's kind of expensive, you and mask it to something that's like some nice shifted power of two, so that you're limited to running past the end of the array by some small number of bytes. Um, but you have other kinds of branches that can be predicted through. In JavaScript, there's a lot of tagging going on, and you can go fake tag checks and get uh, uh, operations to start running down funny paths because you blow a tag check. Hardware will speculate through, for instance, TLB misses, um, TLB per, uh, checks, so it's not sufficient to tag the crypto key and put it on a separate TLB page and mark it as not readable, um, and you have to sort of unlock the, the read bits on the TLB. Um, because a speculative attack will first speculate that he can get at the value before he tests the TLB, so that's not good enough either. Um, apparently, you can hack page table buffers and have the memory not physically be mapped. The cost to map it is pretty damn high, and while it's mapped, a parallel thread can also go attack you. So it's not sufficient to simply move it out of the of the out of the page table. Um, you have to stop other threads because the obvious way you run the attack is you make a request for the key which is going to map the page table holding the key and then read the key and then compare it against whatever my junk thing to compare against and then unmap the page table. Well, while that's going on, I'm just going to run the attack because I know damn well the page table is going to get loaded. right? And so I'm going to make an attempt to go run the attack while the page table is loaded. So you have to stop other threads. I mean, this is like... Uh, I don't know what the right set of stories here is to make this work. There's not a, an obvious thing. So I personally think there's going to be a set or a combination of things taken together here. There's going to be some hardware uh, instructions uh, or memory space added that says this is for secure data. You cannot do a side channel timing attack on it, um, but it's slow to access. So you have to ask for it specially. Uh, and you have to load it specially and you have to store to it specially. Fine. You have to have, uh, you only have a limited amount of this memory. So the, the, the stuff you can put in there is limited. So there has to be a decision made about what goes in it, and the decision has to be smart, which means the programmers have to get involved. That is, the applications need to be rewritten, maybe with some sort of keyword in language saying, this is secure data. I want the compilers to, and the runtimes to put them in the secure memory after a secure processor finally exists. Um, and, you know, and access it the slow way, but I won't access it very often, so it's okay for it to be slow. It's going to be the runtimes for Java and JavaScript, uh, maybe Python, I don't know. It's going to be a language level change. It's going to be a hardware change. So this is a big C change, and it ain't happening like right away. It's going to take a while to get all the bits together. I'd love to say there's some clever software hack will come out in the next you know few months, um, but the guys I talked to just a week ago don't know what that looks like right now, and they don't necessarily think one's coming immediately either. So... Yeah, we're in a funny state right now. It's known there's an attack that will break all your security. And by the way, it breaks like Intel's trusted security zone stuff just straight up as well. The, the no, no known security defense currently in widespread use uh, works. Everything can be broken through. Um, so I think we're in a funny state right now. And I guess just, you know, watch your bank accounts, right? Um, <laughs> well, okay, so so that was a fun, depressing little, little uh, podcast there. And uh, in any case... There's certainly um, jobs for developers and hardware guys 
to go make this work correctly. And uh, certainly for VM writers and compiler writers everywhere. So if you're looking for a job, you know, here's a couple domains which badly, badly, badly need some people to get right after it, figure out what the hell to go do here. Uh, and I guess with that, um, you know, it's Cliff Click. Visit my my website at cliffc.org slash blog or take a class and we'll go into more depth on this and many other interesting aspects of hardware. And, uh, you know, rocketrealtime.com. And uh, may all your uh, hacks be secure. Thanks. Bye-bye.